podcast for Sunday, June 24th, 2018 for Palmdale United Methodist Church. May God use this to be a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for it is you and you alone who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I wanted to ask you, are you the kind of person that remembers your dreams? Really? Wow, well done. I, I heard that you have to have a little pad next to your, your nightstand, right? And write it down as soon as you wake up. Otherwise, it starts fleeting away. Most of the times, I don't remember my dreams. But every once in a while, they'll stick with me. In fact, there was one type of dream that I had when I was younger that I kept getting over and over again. I wouldn't call them nightmares, but um, they did give me some stress. Uh, so we'll just call them bad dreams, right? <laughs> when I was in high school, I had these recurring bad dreams, and it centered around being the day of a final exam for one of my classes, right? And it, has anybody had this before? And it's the day of the exam, and you, re- you realize, I haven't studied at all. Or sometimes it was, I didn't even know I had this class. Suddenly it's the test. I, wouldn't, I haven't even been paying attention, whatever, right? You, know, you need to know that I'm a good student, right? I, was, I wasn't 4.0, but I was in the National Honor Society. I always did my homework. Um, so it was really weird, these pesky dreams of not having studied kept uh, hounding me and haunting me. Then when I got into college, uh, after my junior year, I chose, or my sophomore year, I chose to be a theater major at the University of Hawaii. And my dreams shifted from being uh, uh, the day of exam that I haven't studied, and suddenly it was the opening night of a performance, and I hadn't memorized my lines. And I had this over and over again. Then I went to grad school, uh, worked on my Master's of Divinity to become a pastor, and the dream morphed again. I started dreaming now. You know where this is going? Sunday morning, I haven't prepared my sermon uh, and I am not a spur-of-the-moment guy. Like, I can't stand up and just talk off the cuff for, uh, for hours on end. So it just gave me so much stress. So I looked it up online this week, and I found on psychologytoday.com, there was an article about re- recurring final exam dreams. So I'm not the only one. And I heard, I saw some of you raise your hand as well, right? According to Dr. Julie, Judy Willis, It turns out that this type of dream has been very common for the past two or three generations. She said it has something to do with responsibility and duty and our desire to fulfill those responsibilities and obligations. Dr. Willis postulated it may also be a reminder uh, for those of us not to miss out on opportunities or or to take advantage of uh, doing something positive in our lives. All I know is that I keep having those dreams over and over again. Welcome to the final week in our sermon series entitled Busted Parables of Judgment. And I've been showing you this photo of this cute little dog getting caught in the act of having trashed a bathroom with toilet paper. And it was an image I thought we all could relate to. Uh, That getting caught doing something that we know we probably shouldn't be, but it was kind of fun along the way, right? I think that's what we often think about when we hear the word judgment. Like, God is sitting up in heaven waiting for us to mess up so God can catch us doing something wrong. That's what I thought this series was going to be about uh, when, when, I, when I planned to do these par- parables of judgment. But then once I started studying, I realized that's not what this is about at all. 
In fact, this series has been more about judgment with a capital J, like the big one, the final judgment between God and all of humankind, and how Jesus told parables that related to what's going to happen to the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of God when all is said and done. I mean, outside the church, we think of Judgment Day uh, like this, right? Fire, all kinds of really cool movies about, you know, Judgment Day at the end. Uh, Inside the church, though, it's more like, what what happens to us at final judgment? We all have to stand before our Creator. What's it going to be like? And so today, we get the story of Jesus sitting on the throne of glory, separating out the sheep and the goats. Now, this is the only story in the New Testament with any details pertaining to the last judgment. It's not the one that, it's the only one that talks about it, but it's the only one that gives us details. So we ignore this passage at our own peril. You know, when it comes right down to it, we all know which side we want to be on, right? We want to be with the sheep. We want to be sorted as we stand before Jesus going on to his right-hand side, right? Because it's very clear you don't want to be a goat when you get to the end of time. Uh, they don't get to hang out in heaven with all of the sheep, which kind of starts being stressful for us, right? When you start thinking about what's it going to be like when we stand before Jesus, almost like that recurring bad dream. It, it almost makes you want to do this. <laughs> One more time. That is an actual goat voice, by the way. Um, If you haven't gone down the rabbit hole of screaming goat videos on YouTube, man, it is a trip. You'll be busy for hours just laughing and laughing and laughing. The story of Jesus separating the sheep from the goats, it's a stressful one, right? Because we all want to be on the right-hand side of Jesus at eternity. We all want to be sorted with the sheep. We want to hear uh, Christ say, well done, good and faithful servant, Enter into the joy of your master. And we think we're okay in that department until we hear a story like this, the parable of the sheep of the goats, and then we start wondering, what if we're among the goats? Well, let me begin by making this statement. Despite all of the current events that are in the news today, this is not going to be a sermon whose primary purpose is to guilt you into giving more money to the poor or getting you to volunteer to help out with senior citizens in the community, or compelling you to take a stand about orphans and isolated children, or force you to interact positively with immigrants in our community, or suggesting that you reach out to the prisoners that have, been, that have served their time and are now living among us in our community. That's not what this sermon is going to be about, friends. But let me say this. The Bible has a lot to say about each of those categories. A lot. And we ignore those passages at our own peril as well. So what is this sermon going to be about today then? Well, hopefully it'll help put the entire series of parables of judgment in proper perspective. Once again, I'm deeply indebted to Robert Farr Capon and his amazing book called Parables of Judgment. I've been quoting extensively uh, from this book throughout the series and today will be no different. What's exciting to me is that Capon says that Uh, The parable of the sheep and the goats is actually the culmination of all of the themes of Jesus' earlier parables. It's the last parable that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Matthew, and it sums everything up. He lays out that there are five themes that were present in all of Jesus' parables. First, that the kingdom of God is universal. It's available to all, not just a limited few. Second, the kingdom of God is mysterious. 
It's often not recognizable by most of us. Third, the kingdom of God is actual. It's something right here and right now. It's not something you have to wait for, like only get it when you die. And it's something that you don't have to experience virtually. It is something that you can experience now. Fourth, the kingdom of God is often, throughout history, met with hostility, as well as welcome. But just because you're part of the kingdom of God doesn't mean there's going to be smooth sailing. And then finally, the kingdom of God calls for a response of faith, not a response of works. A response of faith, not a response of works. So these five characteristics, we're going to find all five of these in this parable of the sheep and the goat. So open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew or grab that Red Pew Bible in front of you or take out your phone and open the YouVersion uh, Bible app or whatever Bible app you may have on your phone. And we are going to look together at this challenging Bible passage. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 32. Matthew 25, 31 to 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So right at the start here, we have the first theme about the universality of the kingdom of God. It says that all nations will be gathered before the throne, and all means all. Jew, Gentile, male, female, good, bad, indifferent, all will come before Christ Jesus on Judgment Day. And as we've seen in other parables by Jesus, God has no problem with evil being a part of that. Because Jesus' death and resurrection has overcome evil. Jesus has literally drawn all things unto himself. And the blood of Christ on the cross cleanses everyone from sin. So with all the nations gathered before him, we meet the sheep and the goats. Now, we spent time earlier this year uh, as we were leading up to Easter uh, looking at a series of passages about uh, shepherds and sheep and how Jesus is the good shepherd. And one of the things that we learned in that series was the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. That's the shepherd's job to protect the sheep and make sure no harm comes to them, even if it costs him his very life. But do you know what? Jesus also lays down his life for the goats. For the goats as well. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus drew all people unto himself. It's not that the sheep are his and the goats are not. No, the sheep are his sheep and the goats are his goats. Robert Capon notes that in biblical times, uh, a shepherd would often have both goats and sheep in one flock. Both were valued. And and sometimes at night, uh, sheep often preferred to be out in the open air. And goats often preferred to be in an enclosed space for warmth. So at night, the shepherd would separate the sheep to go outside in the pen and the goats to go inside the barn or whatever the wherever the in in the house or wherever it may be that they could stay and be a little warmer so it wasn't like the hebrew people coveted sheep and they hated goats no they had both of them as part of their lives in fact there's a wonderful passage from the book of exodus on the most holy day in israel passover when they remembered god's saving act of history it says this Exodus chapter 12. This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of the month they are to take a lamb for each family. 
Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. From the sheep or from the goats. So God wants only the very best to be offered for the Passover. But the very best can be either a sheep or a goat. The kingdom of God is about welcoming everyone. Matthew 25 verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Which leads us to our second insight, that for so many of Jesus' parables, the kingdom of God has been a mystery. It's been hidden from plain sight, like yeast hidden in a dough. You, you don't see it, but you see the effect that it has on the, whole, on the whole loaf. Or something small like a mustard seed, which seems insignificant and yet when planted grows into a mighty bush. Or a treasure hidden in a field. You're not even aware it's there until someone finds it and then gives everything away to buy that field. But now, in the final judgment, the kingdom is finally revealed. The kingdom of God in all of its glory. Capon writes, Not one bit of the operation of the kingdom will ever be hidden again. All the previous sacraments of its working in the last, the lost, and the least are finally understood. Jesus has made all things, even the bad old things, new. This is confirmation that the kingdom of God is actually present. It's not just becoming present at the end of time in the final judgment. No, it was present when Jesus walked the earth. In fact, he said, the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is at hand, meaning God is present. God's kingdom is coming right now. You don't have to wait until you die in the by and by. Even more, though, not only is the kingdom of heaven present, it has always been present since the foundation of the world since the very beginning. God has been working since Adam and Eve in the first uh, Garden of Eden to invite people to participate in the life-giving aspects of the kingdom here and now. Author and preacher Tony Campolo loves to say that the kingdom of God is a glorious, gigantic party and everyone is invited. And the story of Matthew 25 affirms that this kingdom party will never end. But then we get into the little bit of the drama of the parable. After separating the sheep from the goats, we get this specific insight. Verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And this is where we take into account that the kingdom of God always has some kind of opposition towards us. Some kind of hostility directed against it. And we discover shortly after Jesus says these words that the sheep weren't aware that they ever did this for the Savior. Likewise, the goats, they're not aware that they ever didn't do this for the Savior, which is what Jesus says. So the challenge for us, and I know all of us are doing it right now, uh, is to not equate the sheep on the right as the good guys and the goats on the left as the bad guys. We're, We're all doing it. I was doing it as well as I was preparing the sermon. Stop. Don't do it. It's not the sheep are good and the goats are bad. Remember, throughout the parables, Jesus has refused to equate badness as being uh, an obstacle into getting into the kingdom of heaven. Likewise, he doesn't teach people that if you want to get into heaven, all you got to do is do these things and then you're in. No. God doesn't have a problem with evil. Because remember, on the cross, Jesus reconciled all the world, all of evil unto himself. 
And so now, at this last judgment, it isn't that evil is being banished forever. It's simply being separated out in the presence of God. Now, it's easy to be a little bit confusing here. So let me try to work at it from a different angle. Remember that Jesus taught his disciples to love your enemies. When people oppress you and hurt you, don't fight back. Don't condemn them. Love them. Pray for them. If they strike you on a cheek, turn your other cheek. Don't hit back. If they force you to take their stuff for one mile, offer to go a second mile. So if Jesus taught his disciples that, why would he now start smiting those same opponents that he had been teaching us to have grace and love and mercy and forgiveness for? Robert Capon puts it this way. He says, for my money, this parable should not be interpreted in ways that portrays Jesus of taking off the velvet glove of grace and put on brass knuckles. Above all, it should not be read in this parable as turning the good shepherd into a wolf. So why is there even this separation at all? Well, because the kingdom of God demands a response. And there's only two ways to respond, in faith or in unfaith. It has nothing to do with goodness or badness. The kingdom is God's gift to us that's given in grace. And the question is, are we going to accept it in faith and enjoy it? Or are we going to fight against it and reject it in unfaith? Remember the story of the prodigal son? The kid who wanted uh, his inheritance even while his dad was still alive and then went off into a foreign country and blew it all and then came back wanting to get a job as a servant. Well, it wasn't that he uh, decided to clean up his life and promise his father never to mess up again. No, all he had to do to come to the party was just accept the acceptance from his dad. Or the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Remember the, the owner that hired people at the very beginning of the day and all these numerous times throughout the day. And there was a group of people that came on in the last hour of a 12 days work, work day. And when they got paid first, they got a full day's salary. It wasn't because they earned it that they worked really hard in that last one hour of work. No. They just simply trusted the gift that was given by the vineyard owner. Or or the people in the wedding banquet invited by the king. The ones that weren't on the invitation list first. They weren't the beautiful people that everyone wanted to have in their party. They were the ones that the servants went out and just compelled the mix of both good and bad to come. Why? Because they trusted the invitation of the king. Jesus' response of all of his parables is a call to faith. It's not a call to good works. And the same is true in this parable of the sheep and the goats. But it might not be that obvious. You see, both the sheep and the goats question whether, when it was that they did or didn't do whatever it is that the Savior said they did or didn't do. When did we do that, Lord? We don't remember that. Hey, when did we miss you? We don't remember that. The answer is the same for both groups. Verse 40. And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these members of my family, you did it to me. Or in verse 5, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And, and, And the challenge is for us to say, oh, this goes back to good works, right? It's all about us doing. We have to do these things in order to get in. No, 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 no. It's not that we have to do this to get into the eternal party, Jesus has consistently taught us. It's not what we do. It's if we know him, if we have a relationship with him. He's saying it's all about that relationship. How do we be in relationship with Jesus? 
Well, it's not about coming to church and spending time in prayer and tithing our finances and volunteering to help feed the hungry. Those are all good things, and we should all be doing them, but that is not what gets us into heaven. That is not our relationship with Jesus. In Matthew 22, a a lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, so, Jesus, help me out here. There's 611 laws in the Hebrew Scriptures. Like, what's most important? And Jesus says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the laws and the prophets. So Jesus says, love God, plain and simple, with everything you have, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But how do you love God? It's expressed in the way you love others, in the way you relate to everyone else. So if you want to know how your relationship with God is, how's your relationship with your neighbor? And not just the neighbors that you like, but all of your neighbors. So whenever it is that each of us finds ourselves standing before the throne, Jesus will only want to ask us one thing. Did you know me? Did you have a relationship with me? We don't have to have copies of our spiritual resume and triplicate to give to St. Peter at the pearly gates. We don't have to have our our, our Sunday worship attendance or all the different disciple Bible studies that we were a part of or our giving statement over the years. No, were you in relationship with me? Capon writes this, Jesus came to raise the dead, not to reform the reformable and certainly not to specify the degree of non-reform that will nullify the sovereign grace of the resurrection. He came to proclaim a kingdom that works only in the last, the lost, the least, and the little not to set up a height and weight chart for the occupants of the heavenly Jerusalem. Like, we don't have to see if we measure up to getting in. It's all about, do we have a relationship with them? And here's the kicker, though. Neither the sheep or the goats knew that they had been ministering to or not ministering to the Savior. Neither of them knew that. Verse 44. Then the goats will answer, Lord, uh, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? I mean, they were clueless, but the sheep were clueless as well. When did we do that? We don't remember doing that to you. The righteous didn't know they were in relationship with the king, and the cursed didn't know either. And Capon says, our salvation or damnation isn't about us knowing anything. What is the basis is whether we trust, whether we believe, whether we have faith. The only thing that matters is our relationship with the Savior. And Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, No man can know or feel he is saved. He can only believe it. Let that sink in for a moment. You may never know or feel like you're totally saved. All you can do is just believe it. And I see it all coming down to this, friends. When we get to the final judgment, when we're standing before the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we will not be judged on anything except our response in faith or unfaith to the Savior. A Savior who has been present since the very foundations of the world were set. A Savior who was present when we were being knit in our mother's wombs. The question is, then, did we relate to that Savior over the course of our lifetime or not? Now, we've almost all heard John 3.16 before, right? We learned it in Sunday school and VBS. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that anyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. It's a powerful scripture passage that confirms that it's all about faith and not our works that gets us into eternity with God. But do you know the verse that comes after John 3, 16? 
specifically John 3, 17, it says this. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, the only reason Jesus came was not so that he could catch us messing up and say, oh, that's it, you blew it, three strikes and you're out. No, no, no. Jesus came to save the world. He's been in relationship with us from day one. And the only thing that matters at the end is, did we trust that? And did we actually have a relationship with him? Or did we distrust it and left that relationship being one-sided only? That God was constantly trying to draw us into relationship with him over the course of our lives, and we kept ignoring it and putting it aside. And here's the part of Capon's analysis that blew me away when I read it. He says, only Jesus knows the answer to that question. Only Jesus knows. The sheep didn't know. The goats didn't know. Because Jesus was the great shepherd of both the goats and the sheep. So what about us? We may never know 100% sure. Especially when we hear a parable like this one read today. But friends, I want to tell you, God is not looking to judge us. God is looking to be in relationship with us. The best we can do is to trust the king. Yes, we should pray. Yes, we should come to church. But also know that how we relate to those people around us, in our own family, in our neighborhood, the people we hear about on the television, how our hearts think and feel about those people as well, is how we're relating to Jesus. In the end, we we don't have anything to fear when we get to Judgment Day. When we get to stand before the throne for all of eternity, it's not about earning our way into heaven. It's not even about being judged. We are at a party, a party that has started from the foundation of the world, and we have been invited to join it. Can we trust that we're there? Can we trust in a love that will not let us go? Can we trust that each of us have been given the ticket to get there by the king? Can we trust that God loves us, each of us, and that God is the good shepherd of the sheep and the goats? Can we trust that God desires to be in relationship with us? And we may never know if we're one of the sheep or one of the goats. So don't get hung up trying to figure it out. Instead, just be in relationship with him. Love God by loving those around us, all of those around us. And then each of every one of us can be inspired by Jesus to love. And then trust that's enough. I don't know how much simple I need to make it. Be in relationship with him. Trust God. Love others. That's it. Start today. Nothing else matters. Amen.